Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want you to uulate on a ukulele. Be hard. I think I can uulate. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 7th, 2019, the Fox in the White House edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Howdy, Emily. Hello. And John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is in CBS headquarters in Manhattan, I assume. Right, John? Hello. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm here I am ensconced ensconced. On this week's show, the House and the President go to war about just about everything. Then we will talk to Amanda Ripley of The Atlantic about her fascinating story about the least politically prejudiced place in America and what that tells us about political bias and about uh, how important politics is in everyday life. Then is Fox News no longer a legitimate news organization? We will discuss an explosive story about Fox's inordinate influence on the White House. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And remember, dear GabFest listeners, we have a live show here in Washington, D.C. at the Lincoln Theater on Wednesday, March 27th. You can go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. It's going to be a great show, and it will be doubly great because we're going to give special early access to Emily's new book, her new book, which just received two starred reviews, uh, Charge. David, you're like the best publicist ever. I'm like, need to hire you. Thank you. Also, just not to be confused, it wasn't, it didn't get two stars. It got reviews. It, it got starred reviews. It sounded for a second like you were saying yes. got a two star. Right, right. Even better. <laughs> I have two helpful publicists. This is great. <laughs> I'm just going to sit back. <laughs> uh, so come hear us. Uh, talk about politics and hear Emily talk about her book and get you can get an early copy if you come to the show. So go to slate.com slash live for information and tickets. And then also on Friday, April 12th, we'll be in Charlottesville, Virginia for another live show as part of the Tom Tom Festival. And you should also get tickets and information about that at slate.com slash live. There's still tickets available for both shows. The president and the House of Representatives are engaged in a hot war across multiple fronts or maybe Congress as a whole. Next week, the Senate will vote likely to reject the president's emergency declaration, which will in turn prompt the first presidential veto. Meanwhile, the House Judiciary Committee is seeking documents from 81 entities and people, including Trump's children and confidants about a whole bunch of different things that that involving Trump corruption, misdeeds, ill behavior. The House Ways and Means Committee is also expected to seek Trump's uh, tax return soon. They have a right uh, under some statute that we talked about before to get the the tax returns of the president. And the attorney general is about to receive the Mueller report, apparently. And how much of that is turned over and seen by Congress remains a huge open question. How Congress may challenge that remains a huge open question. So there is a lot going on. John, what what so far has been the president's response to these various rebukes and challenges and, and uh, demands? 
Well, mostly he's barreling ahead. Um, I guess he makes one substantive argument, which is, A, some of the money isn't coming out of the emergency, um, his emergency action, and therefore he has control over his own executive department money. Two, that he's authorized by uh, emergency legislation passed by Congress. And then third, he says basically anybody who doesn't agree with him doesn't understand that we're in dire peril of – hordes at the border pointing out um, the latest uh, numbers that um, migrant families are uh, the number of migrant families coming are uh, have increased and alighting the fact um, or maybe alighting is too gentle a word uh, that they that the, that the numbers are up but they are up at border crossings which has nothing to do with a wall uh, and the wall according to experts wouldn't do much to affect the families that are that are coming to the border. And obviously the big distinction between this and the emergencies that Congress has approved money for in the past is that the emergency declarations by presidents have not been in direct comfort, contravention to an absolutely clear and unmistakable signal from Congress, the body that has been invested with the power of the purse that is in direct opposition to the position that the president is taking with his emergency action. Right. So, Emily, up to 10 Republican senators may vote against the emergency de- declaration, which is not a not a veto proof majority. But this, as John said, this is a case where Congress has clearly expressed its will, not appropriated money, rejected money for this. So presidential power is that it's whatever the b- opposite of ACME is, the, the nadir. So h- how will the courts consider the vote that the Senate and the House have taken? Will they take that into account at all in in their legal judgment about whether what the president is doing is legit? Well, they're kind of different parts of these lawsuits. But yes, broadly speaking, Congress's will is relevant. If the question you're asking is whether it matters that Congress has expressed clear intent, right? So, you know, the the main asset that Trump has for his interpretation of the law is that nowhere did Congress in passing the National Emergency Act define what an emergency is or limit the definition of that to some like fact-bound determination. So, you know, all of the courts could decide to just look at that part of the statute and say, look, like until Congress limits the president's authority to define an emergency, we're going to defer to the president here. That's one way of dealing with this um, with this issue and the separation of powers problem that it presents. As we've talked about before, though, there are these underlying statutes that Trump needs to um, – to to put in play in order to actually shift the money around to pay for the wall. And so if in looking at that part of the legal analysis, courts think, well, like, wait a second, you know, what's the president's authorization for making this move to begin with? Does it matter whether Congress expressed approval or disapproval for the wall versus these other military projects that it already funded? Well, then this vote of disapproval does could come into play in that part of the legal analysis. I hope that made sense, sort of, at least. Definitely sort of. <laughs> was uh, there something unclear no, about it? That I was ki- no, I was just you? joking. I was just joking. I was just joking. Okay. So, Emily, also, what do you make of this this 81, uh, 81 person, 81 entity hunt for documents and information that the House Judiciary Committee has initiated? Is that overly expansive? Is that a kind of, you know, massive uh, intrusion on the president and the president's Uh, family? um, And are they going to get the documents they want? Well, I think what's important here is to go beyond 
the White House and executive privilege and the limitations that Trump himself and the people who work directly for him can put on these subpoenas. Once you start um, – you know, issuing subpoenas to private individuals and organizations who are a step away from the ambit of the White House, you increase the chances of actually getting some documents because lawyers for those entities and people are going to be making their own independent evaluations about what they can legally hold back. And they're going to be different than the very, you know, legal but also political calculations that Trump is making. You don't want Congress to go on some like total crazy fishing expedition, but Congress has done that before. So like let's make clear that a, you know, big wide um, ask for documents is not some unprecedented thing here. And I think with every question like this, you have to identify the particular request, you know, like should the Trump organization turn over more documents that are pertinent to um, some of the questions, you know, that that uh, came up in the Michael Cohen testimony about whether Trump was inflating or deflating his assets and whether that was a violation. Like, yes, probably, because it seems like there's a factual basis there for wondering whether there was some fraud that was going on. John, I I think I'm right that I just heard on the radio the discussion of H.R. 1, the first big bill the House of Representatives is going to consider, which is a political reform bill. So we're in March. Uh, There's been a Democratic House for now two months. And basically, they've talked about Trump investigations. They've talked about the wall and emergency funding and government shutdown. They've talked to, you know, they've been condemning uh, their own members of Representative Omar, for example, being, being condemned for comments about Israel. Where are the big health care bills? Where is the federal minimum wage hike? Where is the Green New Deal? Where is the Congress, this Democratic House, doing the work that it was elected to do? And why, why is this Democratic House spending all of its energy and its sort of public energy on these other things, notably around the investigation? And is this, are they going to come to regret it? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know. I, gotta, I guess I have a... A couple of different ways this ball could bounce. One is there's plenty of time for the conversation to get reset before the presidential election in 2020. And we saw how quickly people flocked around the idea of a Green New Deal and people flocked around the idea of Medicare for all as a policy conversation. So that can happen again. The party can define itself around a certain set of issues pretty quickly so Democrats don't have to worry just furthering that case a tiny bit more, what will be interesting is how how Democrats actually do handle those issues when they come to them. Because in 2008, there was, as Austin Goolsbee talked about it at the time, there was a foot race to specificity when talking about health care. And, um, and Edwards and Obama and Clinton really got way in the weeds on the specific differences they all had with respect to health care. Um, they thought Democratic voters wanted to hear about that and wanted that specificity. Talking to some people involved in the, in the race now they see a different different set of behaviors, which is that everybody's going to kind of keep it gauzy um, because who wants to talk about specifics when specifics can get you in trouble? The problem with keeping it gauzy is then how do you differentiate yourself from your opponents? So one of the things policy allows you to do is say mine is more precise and better, so, uh, so vote for me. Anyway, we'll see how 
how all that plays out. I guess I have two other very quick points. One is HR1 could have, you can imagine it as a strategically wise thing to do, which is make this not about Donald Trump, but about corruption more broadly. He said he was going to drain the swamp. Well, the swamp is less drained than ever. And so this is the democratic version of that. It's attaching to people's real views, which are about the corruption in Washington, which keeps actual policies from being passed. Why are drug prices high? Because the drug companies. Why is it that healthcare is hard to do? Because of insurance companies. And so it tries to get it in a more root feeling that also has, obviously, it's throwing shade or it's subtweeting um, the president. I, for the life of me, don't know the genius behind 81 different letters from the Judiciary Committee. Uh, I mean, I guess I do. But it just seems like it seems so broad that it both is uh, maybe ineffective, but also suggests a lack of of discernment and discipline, um, which would give uh, fodder to the argument you raised or that was implicit in what you said, David, which is that the Democrats are just kind of um, uh, obsessed with this um, and kind of unfocused in their desire to go after the president. Before we end here, John, you had one last point you wanted to make. Well, I just I was interested in the Quinnipiac poll that came out on the 5th of March this week, which um, which was about basically the president and truthfulness. And it's two interesting things. Who do you believe more, that President Trump or Michael Cohen? 50% of the public believed um, Michael Cohen. Only 35% believed the president. Also, on um, so this is a person who's admitted to lying to Congress. People think he's more trustworthy than the president. Also, do you think the president, president candidate paying money um, to kill a negative story uh, is unethical or a crime? White non-college voters tend to support the president in everything, but they think that it's actually unethical for a president to do that, um, which gives you some, uh, gives me, when makes me wonder or think about the Stormy Daniels um, payments as being in a different category than all the other things the president has been accused of. Final point, though, is we may be in a place, and we'll talk about this more later, where honesty, dishonesty just doesn't matter so much. And being targeted with, uh, targeted with that or people thinking that about you uh, doesn't necessarily matter um, electorally. It's so funny. The Stormy Daniels payment is always the one which I'm inclined to give Trump a pass on. I, I think everything else he's doing is just wholly corrupt and terrible. But that's the one where I'm like, that seems OK. It seems like you're, you know, it's a, you're being blackmailed. OK, so you're paying somebody off to stop yeah. being blackmailed about something embarrassing. But, and it's interesting. <laughs> but I, mean, I guess I... I'm I'm not the American public, I suppose. <laughs> so if you are a Slate Plus member, you get bonus segments on the Gap Fest and other Slate podcasts. And this week on Slate Plus, you will be glad to know that I'm going to weep, to keen, to ululate, and to mourn the fact that Michael Bloomberg is not running for president. So go to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus to become a member and to and to join in my despair on Slate Plus today. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I 
do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos, but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We're joined now by Amanda Ripley. She's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Emerson Collective, and she has written the most Dickersonian story ever written. It's even more Dickersonian than a story John Dickerson himself might write. I was shocked to discover that John had not, in fact, written the story. It is called The Least Politically Prejudiced Place in America. Welcome to the GabFest, Amanda. And what is that place? And why is it the least politically prejudiced place in America? Well, what would be your guess? Like, what place do you I've read the story. (laughs) (laughs) That's no fun. Uh, Okay, so it's far upstate New York, a county called Jefferson County, and uh, it's just east of Lake Ontario. There's a town there called Watertown next to Fort Drum, which is where the 10th Mountain Division of the U.S. Army is located. That's the place. And why? Okay, because... Or in what way? Well... I was interested in doing a story about the outliers, right? Like, which are there any places in the country that are less politically uh, toxic right now? And so to find out or point our way, uh, I worked with a data and analytics firm called PredictWise, and they did some fancy data voodoo that I can tell you more about if you'd like uh, to try to map the country based on estimated levels of political prejudice towards the other side. And this county came out as the lowest partly because it's relatively young, which is partly because of the military base. So age correlates with political prejudice. Younger people are more tolerant of other differences. And also because it is not urban. Um, It turns out that urbanicity correlates with political prejudice. And it's not particularly highly educated. Um, Education also (laughs) correlates with political prejudice. So Lots of reasons, but maybe to me the most interesting one was that it's relatively politically diverse. So at the neighborhood level, you're more likely to run into someone who disagrees with you politically than you are in many other places. So I was super interested in the kinds of interactions you were describing in the story. There's a minister who's kind of at the heart of the story, and then he kind of directed you to some of his congregants. And there definitely are relationships that go across political divides that seem really meaningful. And especially you have this lovely pair of women named Anne who are crossing, you know, one of the biggest political chasms in America. One of them is um, an anti-abortion activist and one of them is an abortion rights activist. And I just wonder, like, so it seems really important, obviously, that people are viewing each other as full human beings and um, not demonizing each other. It doesn't seem to me like there's evidence in the story, nor would we necessarily look for evidence of people persuading each other. And so I guess I'm just wondering what you thought the most valuable part of living in a town like this and trying to have these relationships across political divides. Like, is it... Is it really just that we need to remember that everybody's a human being or is there something about the political culture that is different from that that you are trying to get at? Well, I think at the most extreme, right, the the place we're headed to as a country is a very perilous place, right? When you have 
Uh, 20% of Democrats and Republicans saying that many members of the other side lack the traits to be considered fully human. Um, <laughs> then, you know, that that's happened in lots of other places. And we know how it ends, right? It ends with violence. So on the one hand, you just want to avoid violence, right? That's the most sort of primary <laughs> goal. But to get to your point about, well, what about persuading people? There is no way to persuade people by calling them names. Like that just has never happened. You can pressure people if you have leverage over them. But one way to get leverage over people is to have a relationship with them, right? So if you look at the two ands, the one and understands why the other and opposes abortion. She does not agree, but she understands and can speak her language, right? So if anyone out there ever has a shot at persuading Anne or other Anne's in the world, it's the other Anne, right? Because she understands her language. Is that the only way to persuade people? No, but I would say it's by far the most effective way. Amanda, did you, yeah, the old, the old line, it's harder to, to hate face-to-face. What's your sense of the, um, the gap between the very conservative and very liberal? I mean, obviously there are individuals who can be very far apart, but this part of New York is not exactly, uh, or is it, the same kind of conservatism that we would see in more southern areas of the country? I mean, if you were looking for kind of moderate northeast uh, Republicans, this is where you'd look. I guess so. I mean, the the county went to Trump by 20 percentage points. So I don't know. It's hard. It's a good question. It's hard for me to know. There certainly were some very intense conservatives in the town. It's not, you know, it's not that everybody was kind of in the middle. Um, and there were some very left people that I talked to. So, but that's anecdotal. So I, so I don't know. I mean, you're probably right that there is a, a culture of, sort of pragmatism. But, um, you know, we also found counties with very low levels of political prejudice in North Carolina, for example. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just this part of the do, country. Do you think it is, uh, I mean, there's there's this book, The Big Sort, a few years ago, about how we have, because of reasons of education and class and religious interest, have moved away from people who are unlike us. Did the partisanship cause the sort or did the sort cause the partisanship? I think the sort is contributing to the partisanship. So the research I've seen suggests that people are not moving because of partisanship, but there are other identity and economic issues that are leading them to move that tend to line up with partisanship. Mm-hmm. So where where we are intentionally sorting is with dating and marriage. So this is actually like later I thought, man, we could have done the whole story about this, but it's, it's buried in the story as it is. So since the 1970s, the rate of politically mixed marriages has gone down 50%. Yeah. This is actually a huge deal because there is no better way to de-radicalize someone than to marry... <laughs> And to marry them. So we know from really cool research that Shanto Angar at Stanford has done that people who are married across a political divide tend to have much more complicated views of the other side, even as they disagree. And that's going away. So this is one that I really struggle with. And I was actually talking to Professor Yangar at this a few weeks ago. In the Woody Allen movie? It's It's, uh, Marshall Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan. I have Marshall McLuhan right here. I have Marshall (laughs) McLuhan right here. Right, exactly. Um... I, because the way that this research often gets framed, and I think we're doing it here, is like it, we would all be better off if we had more interpolitical marriage. And like this is a – we're kind of pining for this lost era where people cross this divide. I really like stub my toe on this because I feel like if – you know, and it goes back to also, Amanda, what you were saying about higher levels of political prejudice among people who are more educated. Like – 
if you care a lot about politics, you may very well feel that your views reflect kind of fundamental values that you have. And so if your husband or wife doesn't share those fundamental values, like, that could be really hard. And yeah, sure, it would remind you every day that, like, the other party is human too. And I'm all for not losing sight of that. But it just seems like a big thing to demand from people and that there would be a lot of reasons why people wouldn't necessarily welcome someone from the other political party into the, like, deepest place but, in their heart and their lives. But but, but why – but well, but this gets to a thing that, that I find – troubling, which is that politics actually shouldn't be that right. important to people, like for the most part. It should be a tertiary concern. And and one of the things— Why is that the case? It's the case because, you know, most of what most of what matters in life is that you treat people respectfully, kindly, openly, curiously, decently. My, my mother-in-law holds utterly repugnant political views, and I'm sure my views are totally repugnant to her— and my brother-in-law, similarly, and they're wonderful people who are, you know, fully realized humans who are who are kind and decent and generous, and you know, good to their family, good to the world. And so, doesn't isn't that much more important? But that's in not most ways than than their political than their, like, than yeah, their sure, political you beliefs. You set aside political differences in your personal relationships. That's different from politics aren't important. They're tertiary. Like they're tertiary. But, what like in how we've in in how the world is shaped, or like no, you're supposed to set them aside when you meet someone nice who you don't agree with? Like those are different no, things I think, to me. I think he he Go meant ahead, that no. they're tertiary. They're tertiary in forming your human relationships. That your day to day life and concerns shouldn't be the first thing that determines how you think about the world and other people in life is shouldn't be about. Uh, shouldn't be seen through the political prism always that your human relationships and interactions w w over which you have much more direct control uh, are the things that should center your life and that the frustrating national politics of Washington, which we should point out, obviously, it's in the politicians interest to make those the center of our lives. One of the things and John Vavrick and, and Lynn Sides um, have done great work on this is what Donald Trump did that was so successful was say to people, not only is politics at the center of your life, but the most radioactive, dangerous value-laden um, red meat stuff should be at the center of your lives and energize them on a set of issues and, and values where they got extremely agitated and was successfully able to mobilize that as, a, as an electoral strategy. So that would be a secondary reason in addition to the fact that you don't want it to be the filter of your life because it's distant and out of your control, whereas things that should be at the center of your life are more in your control. But secondly is that it makes you then the whipsaw of – or at the end of the whipsaw, I should say, of um, designing politicians. So I think Emily is right that it is harder to marry and date someone across a political divide. And I say this – I didn't put this in the story, but I married someone across the political divide, right? So maybe I have a bias here. I never actually thought about it as a plus um, <laughs> until now. <laughs> so it is harder. It is harder. And we spent like much of our months dating arguing about politics. And my friends to this day see him as kind of like a exotic, strange creature, right? Even though, well, and maybe this is the point. Once we really got underneath that those arguments, we discovered that our moral values were very much in line. So politics, like other intractable conflicts, 
has become very much a mask for what's, un- what's underneath. If you can get underneath it, you find that there's a more important value there, but we are assuming we know what those values are, right, of the other side. And what we're finding in the research is that we are fooled. We are making big mistakes. Right. We have been sold a total bogus bill of goods by the politicians, pundits, and platforms that profit off of our prejudice. Okay, that was a lot of peas. Too much alliteration. <laughs> Don't let John say that because... <laughs> We've been arguing lately over We've peas heard. and whether they're popping, but you, I'm sure you did great. So, Amanda, you don't have many, to answer but... this because it's a personal question. But I'm curious about what, when you got underneath, those fundamental values are. And maybe my struggle with this conversation and the way it's framed is that John and David just defined politics, and I think you did too, in a more narrow and kind of arid way than I do. Like, I think of, you know, okay, what are the values I think are the most important thing? Like, maximize it, making sure that, like, the most people possible have some fundamental goods and happiness and that we address right now in this country inequality. Like, those things to me seem like they do go pretty deep. I can totally imagine there are different ways of arriving at them. But for me, what's hard about this is at a moment when one party is really like not just playing footsie with, but like really dehumanizing a whole segment of people I get based on, you know, traits like race. It it gets hard for me to dismiss that as like some, you know, cabined off Washington conversation that I can would be better off ignoring. But Emily, two things. One is. Wait, I asked Amanda a question. (laughs) Wait, can I, can I? I see 30 seconds to David after I talk. There you go. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, look, now to be honest, my husband and I agreed on Trump. It would have been much, much harder had we disagreed on Trump. But I guess the point is there's a huge spectrum of people that are in the Republican or independent leaning right category. Huge range, right? Anytime we get into assuming we know that they don't care about making life better for all of us, <laughs> then we are, we are being a little bit hoodwinked, right? Like right now, we know that Americans are assuming the other political side is much more extreme than it actually is. Republicans are rating fellow Republicans as more hardline as, than they actually are, and then Democrats rate them even further to the right. So we know that people are making bad decisions politically and personally because of this distortion. So parents are less likely to vaccinate their kids when the other party's president's in the White House. Mutual fund managers are less likely to invest in a fund if they think there's a partisan difference, even though it doesn't lead to better returns. There's all kinds of evidence that our judgment of the other side is, is getting warped. So we're making mistakes, just like we do anytime we stereotype other people. And at the same time, I think you're right. I think these are core, important values. But, you know, there's Jonathan Haidt wrote that book, The Righteous Mind, right? And he lays out the six most important moral values that shape our belief systems all over the world. And we actually share all six, but it is the case that liberals tend to focus more on three of them and conservatives speak to all six, right? So it's not like we're living on totally different planets from your average voter. I'm not talking about the politicians in the White House or in Congress. I'm talking about your average voter. I think also you can imagine. Two points. Wait, I got 30 seconds. I got 30 seconds. (laughs) I got 30 seconds. My 30 seconds. One is to say, I mean, just to echo a little bit of what Amanda said, which is that I think you make a mistake when you attribute to an individual who ha- whole, who is part of a political party or part of a political movement. Uh, you you attribute 
values or ideas to them without knowing what they truly believe. They're almost every conservative I've ever met also wants to reduce inequality, also wants to, you know, have more fairness, also doesn't, you know, doesn't believe they're racially prejudiced. They go about it in a different way than you or I might. So that's point number one. Point number two is I think the point you made about your own politics is is in itself goes back to my earlier point about politics not being at the center. You believe that inequality and reducing inequality and the injustice that is intrinsic in, in American politics these days is, is, is the most important thing, which is great. But you, don't, you do not spend your entire life doing that. You spend you know, some of your work life and some of your outside work life doing it, but you, it's, it's part of your life. It's not your whole life. You have all these other things. You have a rich network of human relationships and you have, you know, private pleasures and all sorts of other things that aren't politics at the center of your life. Yeah, that's totally fair. Also, I think John wanted to talk. I feel like though we've sidestepped the question of racism in this conversation in a moment in which the Republican Party has been hijacked by a racist president and the other Republican politicians and, you know, commentators, and we can sort of preview the conversation we're about to have about Fox News are countenancing that. Like, I really struggle with that. I'm not trying to suggest that, like, Democrats are pure on this question. They're not. It's complicated. But there is, like, a real problem in the political discourse right now about this particular issue. And, you know, when I think about trying to understand people across differences, Spending time with really understanding people across racial difference is something that's been really important to me. And then one feels a certain, like, wanting to support people who are of different races. And then, like, I, you know, yes, it's also important to cross political divides and not make the assumptions that you're accusing me of making. But there are some conflicts and contradictions here, no? Well, I don't think anybody's saying there aren't conflicts and contradictions or that these issues aren't important or complex. And so I think being... Rec- having perspective and recognizing the way in which our passions blind us in the moment and the way in which politicians uh, take advantage of the, that blindness, it is super useful for uh, politicians to encourage us all to demonize the other side because standards drop when we can say, well, sure, a president should tell the truth, but uh, when you're fighting against the evil hordes, uh, a few lies now and then are perfectly uh, reasonable to countenance. You could argue even that being more careful about this is a sign of being excessively passionate about the ideas. It's not that care means you don't care in how to manage them means you don't care about the underlying issues. And I just, I see as a trait of those trying to manipulate the electorate, um, trying to keep people on the boil constantly. And that has not led to healthy outcomes. That's not to say that there aren't things about which one should get outraged. But because there are things about which one should get outraged, we should be nervous about a system that exists on a perpetual state of outrage. Amanda, if you were going to write a, the opposite piece than the one you wrote about the most politically partisan and prejudiced place in America, what place would it be? And what would you what I mean, what do you think you would find? You're How would it be different than Watertown? Is well, Washington, yeah, D.C.? Amanda said that yeah. in her article, right? Well, D.C. does very poorly on the rankings. Um, we can talk about D.C. Technically, <laughs> slightly worse. Uh, was Suffolk County, Massachusetts, which includes Boston. So in Suffolk County, Massachusetts, nine out of every 10 couples appear to share the same partisan leaning, according to PredictWise's analysis, and eight out of every 10 neighborhoods are politically homogenous, right? So that's different from Jefferson County, where Watertown is. Um, 
so, you know, I, I thought about, hey, should I focus the story on the worst place? Um, should I just hang out in Boston and like write down like terrible things people say about Democrats and terrible things Democrats say about Republicans? But I kind of feel like I know what that looks like. You know what I mean? Because we live in D.C. <laughs> and so I know what that looks like. So I wanted to go someplace where there might be something else going on. Um, but I will say it's kind of I'm kind of touched by the fact that there are a bunch of people in Boston who are very upset about this ranking. <laughs> and so I think that's actually a do, good sign. Do you know if it correlates with happiness? That's I mean, a good question. Because I wouldn't have thought – I mean, one thing that, that, that one notes about cities is that they are – tend to be racially diverse. They're prosperous. They're most tolerant of LGBTQ people. There's a lot of good stuff that's happening in cities, and yet it, it comes with this, this political homogeneity. So what do you make of that? Sometimes, not always, but often, yeah. I mean, I think – it's interesting to think about how different kinds of prejudice operate differently, right? Uh, and they're not aligned. Um, and, and I talk about that in the story. Like Watertown is a much harder place to be gay, obviously, or to be a person of color. You know, I'm not trying to suggest it's a utopia. Um, but I, I, think, I think it's a good question about happiness because I will say while I find it in some ways satisfying to sit around with my friends and like bemoan Trump and Republicans – it doesn't actually feel very healthy at a certain point. Like it sort of feels like we're having the same conversation over and over and just getting more and more angry and upset. Um, When I go out and, you know, thank God for my job requires me to actually talk across political divides. And when I actually talk to people, even when I really, some of what they say offends me, when I get to know them and talk to them, I feel like I'm seeing more clearly in a sense like i'm seeing more of the full picture and it's it is it is like it's like i like myself better in that state if that makes sense sounds a little squishy um, but amanda what did you make of the finding that 45% of democrats and 35% of republicans say they'd be unhappy if their child married someone from the opposite party does that mean that democrats are less tolerant than republicans that's the first question the second is faith and forgiveness do you think that you you talk about that do you think that the decline in the practice of religion has changed this? People have less tolerance with the obvious caveat that many of the people who are least tolerant and particularly with respect to treating other people like they also are God's children happen to be people who are outwardly quite religious. And then I'll, I'll not ask you three questions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think to take the second question first, I think it depends on the on the church and or the religious, the faith and the leaders of that organization, right? Like there are, there are um, houses of worship that really make the case for humility, for curiosity, for forgiveness, for mercy and grace, to the extent that those places have become less salient in people's lives. I think that is a huge loss. But like you say, there are lots of other examples that. Um, do not practice and preach humility and grace, um, particularly around abortion and sexuality. So, so it's a tough question to answer. I think um, as a country, we could stand to talk a lot more about humility mm-hmm. and about the perils of vanity. So that's, <laughs> that doesn't have to come from a religious faith, but it, it might be more salient if it did. And then to, I'm so glad you asked about the asymmetry that uh, we saw in that 
recent survey by PRI in the Atlantic where 45% of Democrats and 35% of Republicans said they'd be unhappy if their kid married someone from the opposite party. Now, the big headline here is that this is a huge change for both sides. In 1960, it was just 5% of both groups who said they would be upset about this. This is like a really important data point because it, you know, is something we studied around race and ethnicity and religion for a very long time. And now there's been a huge shift. Um, other research has found the opposite, that it's Republicans who are more upset about Democrats. Our analysis in this case found that Republicans seem to dislike Democrats more than Democrats dislike Republicans. <laughs> so... I kind of buried this in the story because I'm not sure what to make of it, honestly. Well, and I didn't want to just add to the finger pointing of yeah. like, oh, see, we knew they hated us more than we hate them. Because the big picture is sure. both sides are hating the other side more than well, before. Also, there's also a funny thing that's happening in poll. Not a funny thing, but it's been happening for a while. But also, depending on the poll, self-identified Republicans a lot have shifted from Republican into independent. And so you can have a self-identified Republican core that is differently representative of the conservative core than Democrats to the liberal core. So it's, depending on the poll, self-identification can tweak these numbers. One other quick question. Jim Fallows has this uh, theory that he that he and Deb came up with when they wrote their book about visiting town, healthy towns out in the country. And they had a uh, either a rough or an ironclad, I can't remember, rule, which was that the healthier the community, the less they talked about national politics. Um, does that, hmm. where does that fall? And it, this is obviously an example of one, so it doesn't, but I just wonder whether, where that fits with respect to the way you see Watertown. I think that's a great point. I wish I'd made that point. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, one of the things that came up when I was researching Watertown, that whole area of far upstate New York is called the North Country. And there's a researcher named David Fontana, a professor who's writing a book about this part of the country because he believes that politics have operated historically much better there because uh, wealthy donors and party elites have uh, generally not been very involved mm -hmm. in politics there. So that in general neighbors and friends and people who know each other do politics better than people who don't. And that makes a lot of sense for all the reasons we've discussed. Now, that is changing there to his dismay and the dismay of many people. And that's something, a thread that runs through the piece where we talk about how even in Watertown, this political comedy is threatened. All right. Last question. So if you had a magic wand, how would you reduce the partisanship and division and prejudice political prejudice that's in most of the country? What, what would you do? I would try to shift the norms so people started realizing they were being manipulated, as we've talked about today. So when you start seeing it, when you start realizing that you're being played, you respond very differently to those messages. But it's, it's a shift. It's a shift in cultural norms that we need to, that we need to make, I think. Um, and that's going to have to happen on many fronts. More personally, when I came back from Watertown, I started thinking about how you know, one of the great strengths of that area was the health of the civic infrastructure. There were like healthy organizations that get people talking and working together and solving problems across different divisions. And so, uh, like, for example, they have not one but three rotary clubs in this town. <laughs> they have a morning rotary club, a noon rotary club, and an evening rotary club. And I went to one of their meetings, and it was, like, so charming. Like, I mean, obviously, is it perfect? No. But, like— Unfortunately, the, the three are bitter enemies. And they, <laughs> all the prejudice that they don't have on politics, it's, it's like they that, have knife fights. There is definitely— They there shiv was, each other. 
<laughs> there was some rivalry. But so I went to a meeting about joining the Rotary Club in D.C. Did you even know there was one? I didn't, but I'm not surprised. To hear There's like one. three, actually. Oh, um, well, we've got three. <laughs> yeah, yes. but like they're be- smaller than like yeah. the three in Watertown, which is like a tiny place compared to. Are they racially divided here? Is there like a white Rotary Club and a black well, Rotary Club? The That's problem what I would... is historically Rotary Club's been way too white. So yeah. there's they've been working hard, I think, at least some of the ones here, to become more diverse, and, and they have become more diverse. So but are you joining it? I don't know. I'm thinking about it. That's it's great. like, you know, they do service oh. projects and they have like, you know, these these cultural norms that are like kind of like old school, but really are super timely right now about like they have like this, you know, before they'll do anything, they do a litmus test. Like, is it true? Is it good for the community? Like they, they run through these things that are like super timely right now that they came up with, you know, many decades ago. That's can you send me? In yeah, David's going to be yeah. signing up for it tomorrow. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I know we're supposed to be closing out, but Amanda, how much do you think it matters that the North Country, Watertown are very homogenous places in terms of race? Like you're talking about very predominantly white communities. Yeah, like Watertown is, I think, 7% African American, 7% Latino, and uh, a largely white place. Um, I, I mean, I don't know, because in our analysis, being white correlated with political prejudice, right? Now, that does that mean we're right about everything? No, like this is a complicated analysis. So I don't know. On the other hand, there are plenty of super homogenous places that scored badly on the rankings. I think that trust in a community and its infrastructure is built in lots of ways. And it's possible that in homogenous places, it's easier to build that trust, but it's not the only way to get there. Amanda Ripley of the Atlantic and the Emerson Collective read her story, The Least Politically Prejudiced Place in America in the Atlantic. It's, we could talk about this. We literally could talk about this for hours and hours. It's amazing. Um, Amanda, thanks for coming. Come back anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Jane Mayer, National Treasure, New Yorker reporter, had a story this week in The New Yorker that it was among the most obvious stories you will ever read. It is a story of how Fox has become a kind of state television, effectively a propaganda arm of the White House. Or actually, it's more interesting than that, I suppose, in this argument, which is that the White House is in some sense a propaganda arm of, of Fox, of Fox News. And, and in, it's a very obvious point for those of us who've been kind of paying attention to media and politics for some years is just the, the incredible influence that Fox appears to have on conservative politics in the United States. So, um, so Emily, what, what did Mayer find, basically? Mayer does a great job of, like, rounding up all these little drips of news about Fox and a sense of Fox from, I would say, you know, well, she goes back decades, but especially in the Trump era. And then there are these, like, potentially um, explosive revelations about a particular reporter at Fox who had the hush money story about Stormy Daniels and got squashed. We kind of knew that before, but there's more details. It's kind of more convincingly presented here. And then, I mean, in terms of just like plain old government corruption, the reporting that Trump was personally castigating the Justice Department about its approach to various big media deals that 
involved big antitrust questions. So the Disney deal buying um, the entertainment division of Fox goes through, and then the Justice Department sues to block AT&T from acquiring Time Warner, a deal that implicates CNN. And, you know, I guess you can argue that the Justice Department had perfectly legitimate legal reasons for both of those stances, but the fact that Trump was personally involving himself and uh, berating the justice officials to make a decision one way or the other, that is like not the way we think that presidents should interact with the branch of law enforcement. Oh, and there's also a deal involving Sinclair, a conservative media rival to Fox that's not allowed to go through, which is also advantageous to Fox. So for me, that was like, I guess, not exactly surprising, but deeply dismaying um, because it's another encroachment on the norm that the president stays out of these kinds of decisions, that they have a kind of legal authority and uh, valence to them that is separate from politics. So, John, Fox's audience, Fox's sort of peak audience is about 3 million viewers on a given night. There are 100 million or so Americans who are broadly speaking supporters of the president. Uh so how does that work? How does this minority media entity, it's still very much a minority of people who watch television and even pe- minority people who watch television news, how does it exercise so much control or so much influence and why does it matter that much given the relatively small numbers of people? Well, I, I think the, one of the ways I've seen it in, uh, affect the conversation in the years I've been covering is – Two things happen. One, at rallies and in focus groups, I hear what is essentially talking points coming right from Fox through the mouths of of voters. Um, So the people who are most politically active, um, you can really hear them taking their views from specifically from Fox, not just from uh, the more the broader media. Why does that matter? Well, it matters if I am Senator X from marginal Republican state or quite Republican state, and I want to do something against the president, um, I now have to worry that the that Fox and Rush Limbaugh and um, and the entire group will get aimed at me and that that will um, create enough of a stir that I'll get a primary opponent. And even though I might not lose to that primary opponent, I'm going to have to spend a lot of money and spend a lot of time trying to convince the people who are the most ardent supporters in the party that I'm wrong. And I might have to be fighting against not just maybe the president or my opponent, but also the media wing. And I don't have my own media wing. And so there's a, that creates a chilling effect. Also, it creates this booster or this kind of with us or against us, uh, and we should get to this shortly, which is one of the things Fox has... And this is on the opinion side. The argument of the piece is there isn't there's less and less of a distinction between opinion and journalism side. There are still uh, some uh, regular straight up journalists at Fox. There used to be more. It used to be less defined by the um, by the Sean Hannity wing of the network. But so that has a lot more more influence. And one of the reasons Fox grew was by not only saying we see the world this way, but by delegitimizing all other points of view. That us versus them carries over into politics where Bob Corker said that one thing that Republicans running, and I know I've said this before, in 2018, they reported that what their voters wanted to know was one thing. Are you with the president or against them? And anything that keeps it in that binary, you know, it has had that effect, I should say, of of turning the world into that binary thing. One of the things I think that is so interesting in this piece, Emily, is the way in which she identifies that it's not – 
tease us in, in my introduction, it's not simply that Fox is the propaganda arm of the Trump administration, although it it certainly serves when when Trump is pushing a policy and and uh, it seems valuable, they will they will magnify it, multiply it. Um, but that it that there's a two way effect that in a, a lot of what the Trump administration does is in response to pressure from Fox or per, Fox the the interest that Fox seems to be advancing. What do you make of that? Well, I think you're you're right in identifying that sort of two way dynamic and also the kind of outrage machine that Fox has built is pretty unparalleled, which relates to the conversation we are having with Amanda. So I was um, doing some reporting on this question, and one of the kind of conversations in the academic literature about this, so there are some people who look at the audience of Fox and they say like, oh, its influence is being exaggerated. But then in addition to John's point about how Fox has influenced, there's also this question of how Fox doesn't issue corrections and how it doesn't necessarily verify facts, and then also how it just like entirely skips stories that are inconvenient. So if you are predominantly a Fox viewer, you come away with the talking points John was mentioning, but you also are never told if something turns out to be wrong after all. That is really important. It, that is the, I think, most important thing that separates Fox from other news organizations because it's not telling its audience if it went off with some, you know, half-cocked conspiracy theory and then the reporting turns out to not hold up. And so people never have their worldviews adjusted or corrected. One really interesting idea, and I wonder what you guys think about this, that an economist at Stanford named Matthew Genskow was arguing to me based on his research. He was saying that if he could change one thing, it would be to make the conservative part of the media ecosystem healthier. Because when Fox puts out a view, it's generally in line with outlets like Breitbart or even far fringier right wing that like something will start at Breitbart or on Alex Jones's site. It will kind of migrate over to Fox and they're all like feeding each other and they're not challenging each other. So if something's wrong, there isn't another respected outlet that's like, wait, you got that wrong. Whereas in the rest of the mainstream media, there is that. Like if the New York Times screws something up, the Washington Post or someone else is very likely to come in and try to like correct the reporting and put out a narrative that is actually correct, which then hopefully gets the original news organization to do its own accountability and checking. And the idea that that's really lacking on the right, that seems important to me. And I've been thinking about right. that a lot since Genskow said that to me. Right. I wonder and what that's, you guys think about it. Yeah, no, the, the, that's why the assassination of the weekly, the weekly standards – assassination was so troubling. No, totally. And, yes. And we should say, though, the Weekly Standard is it was itself like a little, a very small outlet that didn't, I mean, it had some influence in D.C., right. but wasn't like driving uh, television coverage. Like we don't have something really influential in the conservative media sphere, I think, that serves this role. Right. And also why somebody like David French, who, uh, you know, I know you have your strong disagreements with David French, Emily, but David French, who is a, who's a, you know, a really smart, rigorous thinker who is, you know, capable of great criticism of of things that the administration is doing or that other conservatives are doing. I think that that's incredibly valuable. I, t- I totally well, agree. John, I, what do you go ahead? Well, I would I would just say I agree. You could almost imagine even, you know, for some goo goo billionaire um, whose personal politics might um, be more to the left. And here I'm painting with a broad brush in the goo goo millionaire. So it could be uh, a conservative goo millionaire. <laughs> but 
who would who would fund uh, hey, Michael Bloomberg is available, you know, would would fund uh, a conservative outlet to do exactly because it not only would make conservative um, views more healthy and but it would help uh, the mainstream press, too, uh, because there are things that don't get yes. covered or that aren't covered as sharply. Um, and so competition would be would be wonderful uh, for everywhere, everyone. So Jonah Goldberg and uh, Stephen Hayes should um, find some sugar daddy to uh, the, to fund that their, is new, so, their new enterprise. What an amazing idea. Um, liberal, it's the jujitsu using a liberal billionaire. That's a well, great because idea. Well, presumably... Get George Soros um, to fund You know, because well, I, going back to your David French example, I mean, the difference I think is here between propaganda and being a conservative person who believes in rigorous argument and reason and uh, giving somebody the benefit of the doubt and can perhaps even be convinced if their argumentation doesn't stand up to the rebuttal from someone else. Someone who participates in the normal rules and norms of critical thinking, which have been the foundation of Western civilization and the progress of man, and then another person who believes only in propaganda, which is mostly the enemy of all of those things. Wasn't it weird that this idea that Roger Ailes uh, and Jane Mayer is telling it Roger Ailes was actually a restraint on Fox that the Roger Ailes had journalistic standards and yeah and I mean what, that was I'm not sure I bought I that think it was one way that Mayer was trying to make her argument that something fundamental has changed but, in the last couple yeah. of years. I have to say I was a little skeptical but, yeah, about that no, part, but too. it's not like I know it to not be but, true. It just seemed like a kind of it was like necessary to but, her argument. But I f- I thought it was Machiavellian, which is that. Um, in order to retain, in order to continue, kind of winning, and 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 pressing the conservative case, you needed some respectability uh, in, and and attachment to those norms of of journalism to get an even bigger audience. I mean, it's I think a version of the argument that people used about um, Chief Justice John Roberts when he argued with President. Trump that there aren't Obama judges and Trump judges. Some people argued, well, he's standing up for the tradition of the judiciary. Other people said, no, he needs to do that so he can continue being a conservative, but retain the patina of impartiality. Very well said. Couldn't have said it better myself. Last question here. uh, First to you, John, but Emily, if you have an opinion, please. So the DNC announced on Wednesday that they would not do presidential debates on Fox. They had rejected Fox as an outlet for any of their probably 347 debates that they'll be holding for their 846 billion presidential candidates. Is that counterproductive or is that, do you think that's a understandable move? And I was wondering, did MSNBC get any Republican debates back in 2016? NBC did. I don't know if... I guess you could argue that the DNC is shooting itself in the foot because any chance it has to get before those viewers, it should probably take On the other hand, I think the motivation here is to try to isolate Fox and identify it as a different kind of propaganda machine than we have had. I think it's really tricky because anyone who identifies themselves as a media organization in America gets the benefit of the doubt with the First Amendment. We have a really strong bias is the wrong word, like tendency in that direction, which is probably the right one. And yet it is a struggle. And this also comes up with organizations like RT and Sputnik in Russia, where they say they're media organizations. They kind of do them some things that like walk and talk like media organizations. On the other hand, they're kind of not really media organizations. Then what? Two reactions. One is Democratic candidates should be able to hit hit that pitching, even if it's, you know, not like what they would hope for. Um, uh, and, you know, so they should be able to handle it. Two, 
Uh, you can see this as a possibly a part of what is potentially more dangerous, but also returns to the question that I raised on our last show, which is, you know, you want to if you're a Democrat, you want to demonize the other side for the general election because, you know, negative partisanship is very powerful. So that takes us back to the question of when you're a candidate, are you which world are you running in? Are you running in the Kirsten Gillibrand now let us all reason together world? Or are you running as a candidate who recognizes that we are in inescapable partisanship and that what is going to be required of a presidency is toughness, breaking some norms of your own, and dealing with the world as it is, not as you would uh, like to be in some fourth grade version of civics? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. When you are visiting Watertown, New York and getting a beer in a local tavern... What will you be chattering about? I have a double chatter. John very kindly sent me an excellent article in Vice, um, which they did a great job of looking closely into civil rights um, work by the Justice Department under the Trump administration and found that there's been a big drop off in a bunch of the parts of the um, of the important work that the Civil Rights Division has traditionally done in the Justice Department. And interestingly, the one of the critics they found was John Dunn, who was um, the head of the Civil Rights Division in the George H.W. Bush administration, and made the point that if we lose this important safeguard for civil rights protections, we've relied traditionally on the Justice Department to really look out for civil rights in employment and um, education and voting rights um, and and to also monitor the activities of local police when they violate civil rights. Like that's a big loss. And one thing that struck me about this um, during the George W. Bush administration, there was huge concern about civil rights enforcement and a lot of hoopla and, um, you know, legitimate concerns. But there was not a huge drop off in just the simple work of the division. And it just seems to me like there's both a sloppiness in letting the numbers go so far down. And also what's revealing is that there's been a 17 percent staff reduction and further cuts are um, in the works. And I remember when I was reporting on this in the beginning of the Trump administration, when um, Jeff Sessions took over as attorney general, there was a lot of fear among the professional career civil servant lawyers um, at the Justice Department that there might be staff cuts. And yes, they're happening. So we have this kind of, you know, weaker civil rights division. And one point the article makes really well is that some of these ramifications, like we're not going to feel them directly for a while because the Civil Rights Division does long-term litigation, 
And also, if you have this kind of winnowing of the ranks and cutting of positions, you're you're taking away lawyers and and build and the building of experienced litigators that you know will, could take a while to replace. So that's all happening. And my second, much shorter chatter is that as a huge fan of scarves and shawls, um, I loved the coverage this week of Stevie Nicks's um, shawl vault and this great slideshow that Vanity Fair put up of her like flamboyant, wonderful, wonderful shawls going back to the 1970s. If you if you like me are always cold and need something around your shoulders, Stevie Nicks is like your icon. John, what will you be chattering to your Watertown tavern buddy about? Well, I, I don't know that I would be chattering about it, although here I am chattering about it, and therefore uh, I'm t- t- totally conflicted, but I'll go ahead anyway. Um, so this week was the beginning of Lent, and a lot of people talk about what they will give up for Lent, um, who, are, who uh, practice Lent and sacrifice. And Father James Martin has a great argument for why your Lenten practice should not be to give up things, but to um, simply practice kindness in a more intentional way during Lent. So Google um, Father James Martin and be kind uh, to see what he's written. But the second part of Lent that is interesting to me was introduced to me by John Ward, uh, the political reporter for Yahoo!, and it is, it's called the Re- uh, Repentance Project, and you can find it at repentanceproject.org. And it is, a, it is a twist on the traditional Lenten devotional, which is basically a daily examination of um, the history in America of um, slavery and segregation and the racism that exists today. And it's very uh, interesting. Of course, Lent has just started, so I can't give you a full review of it. I didn't skip to the end. But it is a... Um, for me, is a new way of um, thinking about Lent in a in a more um, active um, way that connects with ongoing um, issues we have in the culture today. So, if you're interested in any of all that, uh, the Slate show page will have the links to both uh, Father Martin and to um, the Repentance Project. All right, my chatter is about a really phenomenal piece in Slate by Seth Stevenson. Seth, twenty years ago, actually, when he was editorial assistant working for me at the Slate DC office was on a jury and it was a double uh, sorry a single murder but two two um, defendants being tried for the murder of a off-duty police officer and Seth participated in the conviction of these two men in particular he was troubled by the conviction of the second man who was at that time a boy a 17 year old who probably did not fire the gun, may not have even known what act of stupidity and malice was going to be committed by his co-defendant, but has now served 20 years of what may end up being essentially a life sentence for this murder. And Seth went back and revisited the case and spent time with lawyers involved in it, and most interestingly spent time with fellow jurors and heard about their regrets and their misgivings and did make you think that there are, there are ways that jurors are blind to the consequences of what they're doing, that maybe they shouldn't be blind to them. Because because I think almost everyone who was associated with this case feels that there's some form of injustice was committed against this this young man. Not that he didn't, not that he was an innocent, but that, that the punishment was so disproportionate to, to what he may have done. Uh, anyway, it's a really heartfelt, moving, kind of 
self-examination and examination of the justice system. Emily, you would in particular love that yeah, story. Yeah, no, it's terrific. It. I um, have not finished reading it, but I plan to, and um, I'm really glad Seth wrote about this. Other, another quick chatter. If you're going to be at South by Southwest next week, there's a great Atlas Obscura event, a two-day event, uh, which is going to be kayaking to see the bats and at, under the in the Austin's famous bats. And there's going to be a bunch of musical performances and some panels about exploration that we're doing. So check out the Atlas Obscura event at South by Southwest. It's going to be great. Uh, and we had listener chatter, of course, this week. You guys sent great stuff on Twitter and at Facebook. You should tweet at us at, at @slategabfest. This week, the one I was particularly struck by came from at Green Neck, and it's a link to a story, a BBC story, which is in itself a description of a study by a University of Cambridge scholar named Luke Kemp. Luke Kemp looked at the lifespan of ancient civilizations. How long did civilizations survive in the ancient world? And it's fascinating. And the average lifespan of a civilization is about 330 mm. years. So that's should give us pause because the the United States is at 243 right now. So we should we should be conscious that there are there are certainly your civilizations that lasted a thousand years, um, but there are a bunch that you know that didn't that didn't last that Why long. Why are you um, um, the best? What's one your start date for the U.S.? Yeah, uh, wait, 243 would be. Is that 1776? That was just a guess, actually. I just, I, well, it's close. Yeah, 1776. But no, because the reason I was going to say is this year was actually, the, or the, sorry, this week on the 4th of March was the 230th anniversary to the day of the first day that the American government um, started operating under the Constitution after the uh, huh. after the Constitutional Convention in 1787. So um, it took a little while to get ratified and then so forth. Anyway, that's that's all. That's the only reason I was uh, was interested in that because I was thinking, oh, we got about another 100 years to, right. you know, work things out. Well, maybe. So the Kushites lasted 1,150 years. The Vedics lasted 1,000 years. Uh, the Harappans lasted 800 years. Norte Chico, 827 years. But it's not, it's going to be tough, guys. We're going to have to, we got to really pull together. You don't want to end up. You don't want to end up like, like the Neo Assyrians who are out in 322 years, or the old Hittites down in 250 years, or the Medeans 66 years. You don't want to be those guys. You need you need a you need a good longer run. So that is our show for today, my friends. The Gabfest is of course produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate podcast. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Thank you to engineers Melissa Kaplan, Ryan McAvoy, and Alan Peng at in DC, Yale, and CBS, respectively. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Come to our live show in DC on March 27th or in Charlottesville on April 12th. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Well, it's been a dark week in my soul because Michael Bloomberg announced this week that he's not going to run for president. Michael Bloomberg, the 77-year-old billionaire, former mayor of New York, said truthfully, I believe I would defeat Donald Trump in a general election. And then he also said truthfully, but I am clear-eyed about the difficulty of winning the Democratic nomination in such a crowded field. 
So Bloomberg is not going to run. I think he it sounds like he was afraid that Biden would take the space that he might occupy, though Bloomberg has an essentially infinite amount of money to spend. He recognized, A, that he be, probably would lose, B, that he could deploy this money in a better ways, and he's going to deploy it in part on his attempt to get climate to be part of, more part of the agenda, attempt to boost certain Democratic candidates and boost other causes, gun control, for example, that he believes in. So, um, you know, I, I think anyone who's listened to the show for many years knows that my Jones for Bloomberg and my belief that he's he's really one of the the great public figures, the great public policy figures of our time, and that he, he accomplished a huge amount as mayor of New York, and that he's he's a great executive, a kind of visionary leader, and that I, I am certain that were he in the White House, he would run the government incredibly effectively. So I feel like it's a loss, but, but I'm not, you know, obviously, I also think he didn't have a chance in hell of winning, and he probably made the right choice. Do you guys have any have any sense that this was a a tragedy for the Republic that Bloomberg won't be in the race. <laughs> if you're not going to argue that it's a tragedy for the Republic, how no. are we supposed to argue that? No, I can argue it. I can argue it. Here's why okay, I would have liked. Good. I want to uh, hear it. Here, here's why I would have <laughs> liked to have Bloomberg in the race. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.